Aren't you glad you came to Woodland today? Wow. When we were singing the song about miracles this morning, I just sat there thinking of all the people that I know who need a miracle in their life right now and trusting God to hear and answer our prayers. And then as Haley was singing that just now, and I got to tell you, just seeing all these young folk on the platform really encouraged me this morning, but listening to that song and realizing that one day I'm going to see my Savior face to face. And everything in me longs for that. Everything in me longs, not because I'm tired of living. I enjoy life. But I do long to see Jesus. Last week, we all paused and we honored our mothers. We said thank you, how much we loved them, we blessed them. Either we cooked for them or took them out to dinner. Had a lot of fun doing that. Becky did a marvelous job last week. I was just blown away. I sat there thinking, thank you. I sat there thinking, I get to go home with her. I love her so much. You have no idea. In a few days, we're going to do the same thing and say thank you to our dads. And those of us whose dads are in heaven, we're going to remember them and give thanks for their lives. But today I want to prepare for another Sunday, and that's for Sunday, June the 30th, when we do our Summerfest here at Woodland. It's a day that we're going to give thanks to God for this land and this nation that we live in. Wednesday night I preached a message. I'm in a series on the Holy Spirit on Wednesday night right now. The whole time I was working on that message, I kept thinking, you need to preach this on a Sunday morning. I need to preach this on a Sunday morning. And matter of fact, I almost changed course and and just saved the message for Sunday morning. But I had two other messages I had to finish writing that week. Plus, my week was just log jammed with appointments. And uh, I just I prayed. I said, Lord, I, if this is you, I'll preach it again. But I don't think it's fair to the congregation on Wednesday night. Not that I telling you what's fair, but it's just how I pray sometimes. And it wasn't that I was unprepared. I show you my notes. I'm prepared and ready to go, but Wednesday night after the service, people started coming to me, even into the parking lot, and saying, Pastor, you need to preach that message Sunday. That message needs to be preached on Sunday. As a matter of fact, one of our small groups took the message and used it this week in their small group. So today I want to talk to you and just as your pastor and getting ready for Sunday, June the 30th. And as you listen to this message, I'm going to talk about some very challenging things facing our nation and the church and your family. And you will be tempted to listen to this as a political sermon. And I'm begging you not to. I'm begging you to listen to this message like every other message that I preach here in Woodland. Weigh it against the word of the Lord. See if it's the word of God. 
for I don't stand here ever in this pulpit as a Republican or a Democrat or a Libertarian or any other party that you can think of. I stand here as a pastor and a shepherd and a preacher of the Word of God. I do believe what Psalms 127.1 says, unless the Lord builds the house, they that labor in vain, labor in vain, unless the Lord protects the city, the centuries watch in vain. I do believe that with all of my heart. So there are some things as, as your pastor that is happening in our culture today that I really feel I need to address so that you can teach your home and your children and your grandchildren. There are some things that I can't do as your pastor. I can't save you. I can't fill you with the Holy Spirit. I can't heal you. I can give you truth. And it's up to you to do something with the truth that I give you. I can prayerfully preach not dead words, but words that I pray each week are words of fire that will burn deep into your spirit and soul that you will not forget. I have no problem being remembered as a fiery preacher. Not because of my volume, and not because of any gesticulations that I may make, but I always pray that my words are touched by the fire of the Holy Spirit. So again, I beg you not to listen to this as a political sermon because it would be real easy to do that. But I believe this to be the word of the Lord for our church today. So Thursday morning, well, the full day, and a growing conviction I needed to preach this Sunday morning, I just asked the Lord how, so I wouldn't just do a repeat of Wednesday night. The Lord brought back to my memory <clears throat> a sermon I heard by Dave Stone, not our Dave Stone, but Dave Stone in Louisville, Kentucky, pastors Southeast Christian Church. He had preached a message, and I wrote his three points down. And those three points just resonated with my spirit. And so I want to give honor to who honor is due and credit to whom credit is due. These first three points come right out of a powerful message that Dave Stone preached as an Independence Day message for their church. But what I share with you will be what I've worked on and prepared. But it's a great, great message. So would you stand with me and let's pray together because we're going to need the gift of discernment ourselves as well this morning. Our Father, I do believe that preaching is the gift of prophecy. So I pray this morning that you will help me to be words that I don't use before this congregation a lot because it's not my desire to impress, but I do want them to sense the urgency and the burden of my heart today before you. Help me to be prophetic in preaching. Set my words of fire. May they be words from your very heart. And if they're not words from your heart, then let them fall impotent and helpless to the ground. I ask you, Jesus, for the convicting searchlight of the Holy Spirit so that we're not pointing our fingers at the media or the Democrats or the Republicans. But we will begin where you tell us to begin. 
we will begin, Lord, in our own lives before you. And then finally today, I pray that as a result of this message, each of us are going to be strengthened in our courage, strengthened in our convictions, and strengthened in our compassion as to what not only the vision for this nation is and was, but God, what the vision of this church is and how it fits together. I pray this all in the most precious and holy name of Jesus Christ. And everyone said, Amen. God bless you. You can be seated. It's not a complicated outline, but you may want to put some extra notes alongside of it. Well, the first thing that I want to call us to do this morning before the Lord is let's remember our foundation of the United States of America. Let's remember the foundation that God had gave us. At the beginning, we were definitely not a perfect nation, as anyone who's ever studied our history knows, but we had a solid foundation. And that foundation that our Constitution and the Declaration of Independence was built upon was built upon the Word of the Lord. It was built upon a Judeo-Christian ethic. Jesus said about a foundation, he said, I will show you what it's like when someone comes to me, listens to my teaching, then follows it. Read that with me. Listens to my teaching, then follows it. Let's do it again. Listens to my teaching, then follows it. Jesus is saying the same thing to you that I just said to you and I said to the congregation Wednesday night. Jesus can give you truth. Now, Jesus can save you, but you have to ask him. You have to let him. Jesus can fill you with the Holy Spirit, but you have to ask him. You have to let him. So I can give you truth, but it's up to you and I to do something with the truth that God has given us. It is like a person building a house who digs deep and lays the foundation on solid rock. And when the floodwaters rise and break against that house, it stands firm because it's well built. This nation imperfect in its beginnings, was built upon a rock-solid foundation. But before we began to point out the imperfections and the flaws of the founding fathers, and I know that that's even an offensive phrase to some in these days we're living in, but I use it without apology, let's remember there still is no perfect nation. There still are no perfect people. There are no perfect Christians. There are no perfect churches. There's only a perfect Savior, and His name is Jesus Christ, and He's saving imperfect people like you and me. Can we give Him a hand of praise for that this morning? So it seems lately to me, some of the enemies of the vision of the United States, their ploy has been to try to point out all of the flaws and all of the failings of founding fathers and founding mothers and those who came before us, rather than pointing out to the courage, the sacrifices that they made, that they themselves are getting to campaign, protest upon, or whatever else you want to call it, it's because imperfect people started with a perfect, solid foundation, and that's the Word of God. On May 17th, 1776, a little over 200 years ago this week, don't forget that, a little over 200 years ago this week, before the 4th of July, on May the 17th, today is May the 19th, on May the 17th, Congress actually appointed a day of fasting and prayer for the colonies so that they might appease by sincere repentance God's righteous displeasure through the merits and mediation of Jesus Christ and obtain his pardon and his forgiveness. And that early Congress, as they were seeking the Lord in the midst of this ongoing war for independence that you and I celebrate, 
They were seeking the salvation of this nation upon not the power of the armed forces, not the purse of the colonies, but they were seeking through the merits and the atonement of what Jesus Christ had done. Yes, they were imperfect, but they knew a perfect Savior and they knew a perfect way to pray. George Washington added four words to his inauguration ceremony. These four words were so help me God. And when President Washington was inaugurated, he knelt down and stooped over and kissed his Bible as a sign of his submission to God and his word. John Adams, the second president of the United States, said our Constitution was made for a moral and religious people. It is wholly inadequate to the government of any other. For democracy to work, the majority of the people have to be religious and moral at their core or it falls apart. Dear ones, it behooves us to listen carefully to the words of one of the founding fathers that was there when this document was being drafted and written and sent to all the colonies for its approval. And that was simply this, that this nation was founded upon the principles of Christian faith, the Judeo-Christian principles of the Word of God. And without an adherence to those principles, the nation wouldn't be able to make it. Abraham Lincoln, speaking in Springfield, Illinois in 1861, holding up a Bible, he said, in regard to this great book, I have to say, but it is the best gift God has given to man. All the good the Savior gave to the world was communicated to us through this book, but for it, we would not know right from wrong. Those were the words of President Lincoln. President Theodore Roosevelt in 1909, after going to a Sunday morning worship service, said these words after a week of perplexing problems. It does so rest my soul to come into the house of the Lord and to sing and to mean it. His words, and to sing and to mean it. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. My great joy and great glory in occupying this exalted position as president of this nation is that I am enabled to preach the practical moralities of the Bible to my fellow countrymen and to hold up Christ as the hope and the Savior of the world. I think without a shadow of a doubt, it is fair to conclude that this nation was founded upon the rock-solid principles of the Holy Scriptures. Can you say amen this morning? So we've got to remember the foundation that God has given to us. There was a resolve. Say that word with me. Resolve. Say it again. Resolve. I meet very few people with resolve anymore except when it comes to their own self-will. Sometimes I meet men who don't have the resolve to make their marriage work, but they have the resolve to go chase after another woman. Sometimes I meet the teenager that doesn't have the resolve to submit to his own parents as they love him and try to raise him in the knowledge and the fear of the Lord, but he has the resolve to live a rebellious lifestyle only to reap a whirlwind later. Sometimes I meet a group of people who have money as their goal, but they don't have the resolve to pay the price that it takes to earn that money. Resolve is a powerful way word. And these men and women, their resolve was such that they laid their lives and they laid their fortunes on the line. And many of them lost their lives and they lost their fortunes in order that you and I could gather here with the freedom not only to say what we want, but to worship God as we choose freely today. Can we give him a hand of praise for men and women of resolve? Resolve. I think secondly, it's time for us to recognize the cracks to recognize the cracks. If we fast forward to the present day that we're living in, there are cracks that are beginning to form. And these cracks are growing larger and larger. They're getting more and more media attention. 
We have moved past being a God-fearing nation. We have moved past being a nation where people wanted religious freedom, where our founding fathers knew that God was sovereign and that God was important to a nation, and how you spoke about God and how you used his name was important so that you could offend him. To now that we have politicians who think it makes them cooler if they use the Lord's name in vain and swear. Now that you have politicians who no longer fear the name of the Lord, but will use the name of the Lord in order to capture and to garner the votes of those who really do love the Lord and behind their backs laugh at them. It's a strange twist, ladies and gentlemen, brothers and sisters in Christ, when you begin to see these cracks form and you realize that our God is present and our God is not silent, our God is not deaf and our God is not blind, and if God has judged in times past, God will surely judge again. And it is important for us to recognize the cracks in that foundation. Because when the cracks appear in the foundation of your home or in your marriage or in anything else, you immediately have some resolve to begin to try and repair those cracks and to strengthen those cracks. One of the churches that I was privileged to serve as a youth pastor back in the 70s, it was a little rural church up in the North Georgia mountains. And some reason, the foundation began to give way. And they called an engineer in and said, how can we save the church? And he said, the only way to save the church is we've got to run these rebar from side to side to pull the walls together. It was an ugly little building with all that rebar in there. But what happened is young people were saved and people were called to ministry and people were healed and a church grew and flourished was simply this. It doesn't matter how shiny or how pretty your building is. What we need more than anything else is the glory of the Lord. America needs a revival again. America has got to have a revival. A few weeks ago or about two years ago, I should say, I took an oath when I was sworn in on the Brownstown Downriver Development Authority. That oath included that I would swear to uphold and protect the Constitution. I smiled as I took it that day, not because I was lighthearted, but because I thought of my son taking that oath when he became a soldier. I thought of those of you in our church who've taken that oath as a soldier. I thought of those in our congregation who serve in different city council positions and those that I know who are governors and, and those that have even been president that I've been privileged to get to meet and talk with, all taken that same oath to swear to uphold and protect the Constitution. There are people now that are trying to attack our Constitution. And what they mean by a living Constitution is simply this, that they can make it say whatever they mean for it to say rather than what it says it says. I know that doesn't make sense, but let me say it again. Rather than it says what it says it says. If you doubt you understand that, say that to your teenager next time. I'm sure they will understand you. It means what it says it says. Can you say amen? If you read John 3.16, it means what it says. It says, God so loved the world that whosoever believed in him would not perish but have eternal life. It means what it says it says. The problem is many people haven't read the Constitution to know what it says. They do like they do it the way they do their Bibles. They pick and they choose. So this year I requested an amicus brief that was filed on behalf of the students at the University of Iowa that the campus was trying to take away their right 
to be able to share their faith and to assemble in Christian groups so other groups had the privilege of sharing. You say, Pastor, why was that important to you? Because Becky and I helped establish Chi Alpha groups all over the state of Georgia. We believe in university ministry. I also filed and got a copy of the Amicus Brief in the Woods versus Seattle Union Gospel Mission because there, this, this company, this organization was being sued and towed that they had to hire people that disagreed with them doctrinally and had people that were opposed to their mission because of the Freedom of Employment Act. That is like saying to you and I that here at this church that we have to hire somebody on our staff because they apply to be on our staff and they're an atheist or they're diametrically opposed. Though we're in the Constitution, does it guarantee you that kind of right? But when people want to make it say what they say it says, rather than say it with me, it says what it says it says, that's what it said, then you all of a sudden have people trying to mistwist it and interpret it again. There is a publisher, the Wilder's Publication. I'm glad that none of our schools, as far as I've been able to find out in our community, use their products. But they sold under copyright, not under copyright, but under the, the cover of the Constitution and Declaration of Independence. I will read it to you. This book is a product of its time and does not reflect the same values as it would if it were written today. Speaking of the Constitution and the Declaration of Independence, parents might wish to discuss with their children how views on race, gender, sexuality, ethnicity, and interpersonal relationships have changed since this book was written before allowing them to read this classic work. Friends, it is the height of foolishness to take something like the Constitution of the United States of America and to say about those brilliant men and women who have given us, given us a document that has lasted this long upon which this nation has been built and say, those folks really didn't know what they were talking about back then. There is a certain pride, isn't there, that comes. Because a lot of times I talk to people who are called to ministry like I am. And they tell me about the books they're writing. If you're a pastor, I'm going to ask you, what are you reading? If you're a preacher, what are you reading? Then I will sometimes say, well, what about some of the older books? Have you read Spurgeon? Have you read Whitfield? Have you read Ed? all those books were written at another time? They don't have anything to say to us today. It's the height of folly for you and I to think we are smarter than the people that come before us just because we have iPads and iPhones. You know, they did what they did without half the benefit of what you and I have. And they built something that you and I benefit from. We remember just a few years ago when in Dearborn, four Christians were arrested. I had lunch with some here in, at Baldo's Restaurant in Brownstown were arrested because they were simply sharing their faith. And later, in a suit, the city of Dearborn had to apologize about that. It brought embarrassment to our state. It brought embarrassment to the city of Dearborn. What is happening to our country? I sat down and I just wrote that on a legal pad. What is happening to our nation? And if it continues, if the cracks continue to develop, what toll is it going to have on our children and my grandchildren? I have three wonderful grandsons. One of them smart as a whip that just loves to tell me what he's learning. I've thought about Chris and Rachel who will be getting married in just a few days. I was talking to them just recently. They were asking my advice on some things. So I was happy to give them my advice on some things. When it came to children, I said, now you guys need to take your time. You need to enjoy each other. But by August, I expect you to be pregnant with my first granddaughter. <laughs> No hurries, just hurry up. 
Ian, are you listening? You and Daniela, it's time. You've been married, what, four years now? That's right. Come on. Talk to him, Ed and Yolanda. Help him out. When did the cracks really start to show in our foundation? Those of you who are younger than me, you may not remember this time. But I can remember as a child going to school that we not only said the Ten Commandments, but we said the Lord's Prayer every single day in school. Do any of you remember a time like that in your life? And you know, since that time, since it became illegal for even voluntary prayer for a student to say in school, and one of those prayers was in the state of New York in 1961. This was the prayer they were allowed to say. It wasn't the Lord's Prayer. It was, Almighty God, we acknowledge our dependence on Thee, and we beg Thy blessing over us, our parents, our teachers, and our nation. That was it. That prayer came under fire. That simple prayer. A Muslim could have prayed it. A Jew could have prayed it. A Christian could have prayed it. It was just that simple prayer was outlawed in the United States. But what has happened, according to David Barton, whom I've referred, and we've used some of his videos here before, what has happened in our nation is murder rates have gone up, drug abuse rates have gone up, abortion rates have gone up, rape rates have gone up. Every negative rate you could think of in America has continued to go up. The only rate that has gone down since 1961 in America, while all the other rates are rising, is the average SAT scores of our students in the United States. You see, there's something about a nation that honors God. God that affects not only you and I, but it affects our children and it affects the environment that they grow up in. It even affects the kind of education that they get. And so we have to recognize these cracks. You say, Pastor, that's just coincidence. I have read certain books that say it's just coincidence. It's a product of our times. Friends, I don't believe in coincidences. I do believe in a sovereign God. And I also believe in what President Ronald Reagan said. If we forget that we are a nation under God, then we are a nation gone under. If we forget we are a nation under God, then we are a nation gone under. And somehow or another, I don't think it's any accident that since 19 62, these rates have been going up, these crime rates have been going up, while our students' SAT rates have been going down, and suddenly America is experiencing a seismic shift that's happening. Jesus says, if you don't build upon a solid foundation, that absolute truth, say it with me, absolute truth, please say it one more time, absolute truth. Do you understand that? That means Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. You don't have to worry about tomorrow. He's going to change his mind. You don't have to worry about tomorrow whether the sun is going to come up or go down. You don't have to worry about whether gravity is going to quit working. You don't have to worry about the laws that God has set into order. But in this society that we live in today, absolute truth is absolutely wrong to believe in. That's about the only absolute that comes around. The people who believe in absolute truth, that somehow or another, that they're bigoted, there's people who believe in absolute truth are somehow or another dangerous. Friends, people who are building on anything other than the solid word of God, when the storms come, as Jesus said, their houses will wash away. What troubles me most, though, is how this affects our little ones. In Matthew 18, 6, Jesus said, If you cause one of these little ones who trust in me to fall into sin, it would be better for you to have a large millstone tied around your neck and be drowned in the depths of the sea. 
I recently had to deal with a situation and talk to a person and to an individual where a teacher who says, I'm a Christian, but says the Bible is silent about these things, so therefore it is not sin. So when I asked what the Bible was silent about, the Bible was silent about homosexuality. I said, obviously your teacher has never read the Bible. Your teacher who says they're a Christian is a wolf in sheep's clothing. They may call themselves a Christian, but if you deny what the word of the Lord says, you are denying Christ. The Bible does not say it's a sin to be a homosexual. It's a sin to practice homosexuality. Are you listening carefully? And so, therefore, you can call me bigoted because I believe what the Bible says is sin is sin. Or you can call me someone who truly loves people and wants to see them set free. I am not going to put them through any sort of conversion process. I'm not going to put them through any sort of chemical process. But I will tell you that if you surrender your heart and life to Jesus Christ, that Jesus Christ is able to change you and make you completely whole again. Can we give him a hand of praise for that this morning? Jesus said these words, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. No one can come to the Father except through me. This is the foundation that the United States was founded upon. Now, let me be very clear about something right here. Rick, can we get a little air conditioning? I've people all over fanning themselves, and I'm sweating like a pig up here. Edit that out of the recording today. Thank you. What is happening today is there is a desire to replace the Judeo-Christian ethic with a philosophy that continues to change its values. There is a desire when even, and if you'll put that point up there for me, a desire to replace the Judeo-Christian ethic with the philosophies that other people want to put together for us. Friends, please hear me this morning. My friends that are atheists are still my friends. My friends that are homosexuals and continue in homosexuality are still my friends. My friends who are Muslims or Jews and reject Christ as their Lord and Savior, they're still my friends. The beauty of America, unlike Pakistan, the beauty of America, unlike Iran, you don't have to worry about anybody killing you because you're not a Christian. The beauty of America is you don't have to worry about anybody coming to your house and trying to burn you out of your home just the way it happened to a fam two Christian families in Pakistan. You don't have to worry in America like you have to worry if you're a Christian in the northern parts of India where the Hindus will come along and try to burn you out of your homes as they did two of our missionaries and their two children in their car. The beauty of America is you can curse God's name. You can call God whatever you want him to. You can paint a picture of Jesus Christ and you can stick it in a glass of urine and you're free to do that because in America, the Judeo-Christian ethic gave you the right to be able to be creative. It doesn't mean I have to like it. It doesn't mean I have to approve of it, but it means that I grant you that right to be able to do that because my God is greater than any crucifix stuck in the bottom of a barrel of urine, my God is greater than any slander that can be thrown at him. For when the horrors of hell have passed away, the cross of Jesus will continue to stand tall and firm and strong. Yeah. 
That's why we believe what we believe. The people who want to kill in the name of God, the people who want to kill in the name of religion are afraid that their religion cannot stand up to truth. You can cut our heads off. You can crucify us. You can burn us to death. You can shoot us. You can do whatever you want to. You can malign us. But passionate followers of Christ are not afraid of the gospel or the name of Jesus Christ because we know when it's all over, we shall be with Jesus Christ. We shall be with Christ. And that's why even some of our present-day martyrs are dying, singing the hymns of faith the same way they did in the Colosseums of Rome and the same way they did when others hunted them down. Understand this. If America leads this Judeo-Christian ethic, there will come a time where America is more dangerous than any place else in the world because of everything that we have allowed. And the people shouting for freedom the most right now from the Judeo-Christian ethics, they will be the first ones hunted down. If you don't believe that, just study your history and see. Second thing I see is a political earthquake that could change the constitution and the governance of the nation. Every time you hear somebody saying the constitution was written by a bunch of old white men, that's true. It was written by a bunch of old white men. But does that make it invalid? Does that mean they were not people of faith and compassion? No, they were imperfect. But somehow or another, this Constitution led us to what we have today. Even Martin Luther King, whom I admire and respect, and I told you about the conversation, the two hours I got to spend with his secretary in Atlanta a few years ago, Martin Luther King acknowledged if it had not been for the Judeo-Christian ethic for the Bible undergirding our Constitution, the horrors of slavery would have never been eliminated, nor would the horrors of the Jim Crow laws. So it's important that we recognize just what we have before we say we want to throw it away. The third thing I see is a fascination and an economic shift to socialism. Socialism where the government owns everything and the government takes care of you. Do we not remember that the founding of this nation was people that believed that by God's help and by God's grace they could build a life for themselves and the Constitution gave them the right not only to liberty and to justice but to the pursuit of happiness? I don't need the government defining happiness for me. Let me pursue my happiness in Christ. And I have worked in those socialistic nations. And I'm going to tell you, capitalism is not perfect. Capitalism has a lot of flaws. Capitalism has to be checked on all the time. Power has to be checked on all the time. But brothers and sisters, please hear your pastor this morning. Capitalism is the best thing financially that I've seen going on in this world, and it's a lot better than socialism. And that's not to say I don't believe in programs that help those and government agencies that help those that need our help. So what's the answer? The third thing is restoration. Becky is wonderful at restoration. Becky sees things that I don't see. She likes old, I like new. We're riding down the road one day and we look out into a field. I've told you the story before. Becky sees an old bed out in the field. She says, stop. She screams, stop. I stop and she says, see it? I go, nope. She goes, look. And there's an old bed. And I just looked at her 
because I can't say no to Becky. And I said, please, no. Becky gets out of the car, runs down the sandy lane to the farmhouse. The band suckers her out of $10. Then she suckers me out of $100 to have it sandblasted and painted. <laughs> but when she's done, it's a beautiful bed that she's so proud of. And underneath all that rust were seashells and all kinds of stuff that was made. And she was so proud of that bed. And I was so, she's good at restoring things. She took an old chair that I liked from my mother's house. And for a surprise that, that my mother was thrown away, she restored that chair, upholstered it, re put all the stuff you sit on back into it so it would be comfortable. And it looked like a brand new chair. I was surprised when I saw what Becky had restored. And I just wish she had thought that way about my green lazy boy chair that I dearly love that she threw away without asking. <laughs> I will always be bitter about that. You see, there are people who have a, an art for restoration. Doug Williams, a member of our church, took an old car and rebuilt it from the ground up. John, you have a beautiful car that just was one all kinds you built from the ground up. David, you've been telling me about your Mustang that I'm going to come out and see, that you're rebuilding and restoring. There are people who have that gift of restoring. I don't have that gift of restoring. But you know what? All of us can work together to see our nation restored to what God called it to be. But you can't restore something if you don't know how it was built. You can't restore something if you don't know the foundation it was upon. Two years ago, we went to Jamestown, and we walked over the foundations, and they were able to rebuild buildings and say, this was what was at Jamestown because of the foundations. If you go to Fort Frederica on the, <clears throat> an island off the coast of Georgia, you can see the fort where John Wesley preached at. And you can see how they rebuilt from the foundations, and they were able to determine what was there. I've been overseas, like in the Holy Land, and seen what they've been able to rebuild. When you know the foundations, you can rebuild upon the foundations. So we have to look at the foundations of America, which was the Bible, which was prayer, and which was a call to holiness, as the early Congress called us to. And we have to look at where the Bible speaks and start there. I'm not saying we need to elect better politicians. I'm not saying that we need to have better media coverage. I'm not saying that we need an alternative to Republicans or Democrats. That's not where the Bible begins. The Bible begins in 2 Chronicles chapter 7 and verse 14. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, I will hear from heaven. I will forgive their sins. And read it with me. I will restore. Say it again. I will restore. One more time. I will restore their land. I don't have to know how to restore a nation, but I know how to humble myself before God. I know how to pray. I know how to read his word and understand that it says what it says that it says. And God has said if his people will do that, he will rebuild the nation. Can we give the Lord a hand of praise this morning? God is the master restorer. It's too easy to scream. It's Congress's fault. It's Trump's fault. It's Obama's fault. It's Bush's fault. It's too easy to scream, it's the Democrats, it's the Republicans, it's, it's, the, it's the media. That is not our job as followers of Jesus Christ. God take his, takes the focus of his spotlight and he puts it on us. He says, my people, you and me, 
He says, take a look at your house. Take a look at your life. Take a look at your family. Revival is not going to begin at the White House. Revival is going to begin at my house and in your house and in this house. This is where revival is going to begin when we humble ourselves before the Lord and we seek him with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's where revival begins. When we humble ourselves, we're emptying ourselves of our pride. We're emptying ourselves of our ambition. We're not voting our pocketbook. We're voting our consciences. In 1 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 1, in a government that I believe was much worse than any government you and I have ever lived under, Paul writes to young Pastor Timothy, in a violent time, a pornographic time, a time where anything goes, a time that would soon disappear as the vandals invaded Rome. Paul would write to young Pastor Timothy and he would say, I urge you first of all, pray for all people. Ask God to help them, intercede on their behalf, give thanks for them. Pray this way for kings and all who are in authority so we can live peaceful and quiet lives marked by godliness and dignity. Boy, that's a whole lot different than what some of the screaming heads on television are saying. You wanna know why I believe people scream? It's because it's easier to yell and blame everybody else than it is to come to the altar and humble ourselves and seek God. It's always easier for me to say it's their fault. It always begins at home. If we do these things individually, and if we do these things collectively as a nation, this is not my word, this is God's word. God will restore our land. Say that with me. God will restore our land. And God will not restore a theocratic nation. Please don't miss out. I don't want a theocratic nation. It's never been good when the government and the church have gotten in bed together. I don't want a theocratic, I want people to be what they want to be. I just don't want them, I just don't want them to take away the foundation that God has given us to govern our lives upon. Because if that happens, friends, you will only reap the whirlwind. I have to say to you what the Bible says in Psalms 20 and verse 7. Some nations boast of their chariots and horses, but we boast in the name of the Lord our God. Yeah. It's not our moral, it's, it's our morals and it's not our manpower. It's our faith, it's not our finances. It's our convictions, not our connections. I have all kinds of people who want to network with me because all they want is a connection could care less about me, they want a connection. Can you introduce me to this person? Can you introduce me to that person? And I don't mind, I mean, I'll share my network with anybody. That's not a problem. But when you meet people who care about you, that means something. And I can imagine for Andy Linko and for Pat Odette, when there are people who live in the community that care about the community, that means something to them rather than people who just come to try to earn a living 
and do their own thing and not care about the community. It's why sometimes I'll periodically say to you, when you walk across the parking lot, show you love your church. Pick up any trash that you happen to see. We always have wind in Michigan. And sometimes I see people picking up trash and I say thank you. I'm walking across the parking lot at the Brownstown Township office this week and there was trash in it, so I picked it up and dropped it in the trash can and then just went and washed my hands. You say, well, I don't want to get my hands dirty. Well, please don't get in the ministry because sheep are dirty. Those who are listening just heard what I said. I get my hands dirty every day. You see, there are practical ways that we show our care. This morning, I feel like a bulldog. Isaiah 56.10 says, The leaders of my people, the Lord's watchmen, his shepherds, are blind and ignorant. They are like silent watchdogs that give no warning when their danger comes. They love to lie around, sleeping and dreaming. Can I tell you three things I don't like to do? Number one, I don't like to lie around. Number two, I hate to spend too long in bed. And number three, I don't like dreaming. I like doing. A watchdog that lies around and sleeping will allow the thief to dig into your home. And as your pastor, I'm standing up here, I pray with the voice of a bulldog saying to you, it's time for us to recognize the cracks in our foundation. So what do you do with a message like this in light of June 30th? First of all, Jesus tells a story in Matthew 24 of how a man's house had got broken into. And the reason the man's house got broken into is because he wasn't aware that the thief was coming. Jesus is not talking about a second coming. He's talking about accountability. That's another word we don't like anymore. Because when I tell people what the Bible says about sin, they get mad sometimes. That's okay. It comes with the job. It just comes with the job. When I tell them that Jesus loves sinners, he's not angry at them. He wants to save them. That sometimes makes them even madder because they'll say, who says I need being saved? Jesus says you need being saved. Well, who says God hates my sin? Do you think Jesus, that God would have crucified his son? Do you think God would have allowed him to be scourged the way he was? Do you think God would allow the crown of thorns to be slammed into his head and spit upon? Do you think the nails would have pierced his feet and his hands and a sword his side? Do you think Jesus would have died the agonizing death upon Calvary if God didn't hate sin but love sinners? And that's the beauty of the gospel. That God hates sin, but he loves us. One of my sons, unnamed, did something wrong one time. He drove way too fast. He had to call his mama because he couldn't get his daddy wisely. His mama came. She had to call his daddy so he could get out of trouble. I told my son, I was furious with him. I said, this is the first time in my life I've ever wanted to choke you to death. He says, why? I said, because you could have killed yourself. Does that make sense? I could have choked him to death, but he could have killed himself? You've got to be a parent to understand that. Have you ever felt like killing him? You see, the reason I was angry is because he scared me spitless. 
I wasn't embarrassed. I wasn't the one driving fast. I wasn't embarrassed. He paid the fine. It didn't cost me anything. I was angry at him. I mean, angry at him. One of the few times in life he did not talk back to me because he knew I was angry at him. For the love of God, hear me this morning. Do not be deceived by the narcotics of this world that says that sin does not matter to God. Sinners matter to God. God loves lost people, but God hates sin. That's why Jesus was crucified for our sins. Does that make sense to you this morning? And when we try to water that down and make it say something that it doesn't say, we have robbed the gospel of its power to save, to restore, and to redeem. The thief has come in. So be ready at all time for the coming of the Lord, for there will be an accounting of how we live our lives in this day. Secondly, I'd say stay full of the Holy Spirit. Ask Him to fill you. Be sensitive to the Holy Spirit. Each day look for fresh bread. I have never, ever, ever in 20 years, not for a leadership leverage devotion that I preach, not for a Wednesday night message that I preach, not for a Sunday message that I preach, not for a small group devotional I bring, not for a staff devotional, I have never in 20 years, as God is my witness, bought a canned message or a stale message, but I have sought the Lord for 20 years to bring you the word of the Lord, fresh bread, because fresh bread matters. If you remember Christine and James that were members of our church that moved to Arizona. James is a professional baker and run a bakery here in the metro area. I asked him one day, we were at lunch together, he'd asked to have lunch with me and I said, James, why is the bread you bring so good? I mean, it's, do you remember that? We used to get all that bread from James. Some ways it was good for me that he went away because I was spreading out like a US map while he was here. He goes, because the bread is fresh. He said, the bread you have at home is not fresh. He said, if that bread at home doesn't start getting mold on it in about two days, it's, it's got chemicals in it that are not good for you. It's got additives in it that he believes is causing a lot of sickness. Daniela, you're a dietitian. Would you agree with that? Yeah. He said... Pastor, if bacteria won't eat it, you shouldn't eat it. <laughs> Becky was gone. And I wanted strawberry shortcake. And I hate them little cupcake things they sell. So Amy and I went to Trentwood. We bought some of them big, fat strawberries. And I bought some canned biscuits. Man... It was so good, it'd make you slap your granny good. It was just good. We poured them strawberries over those hot biscuits and put whipped cream on top of them. Next morning, I got up and there were still some biscuits left there on the top of the stove. And I thought, well, I'm going to eat one of them biscuits before I go to work. I grabbed that thing, it was hard as a rock. The night before, it was all soft, hard as a rock. 
I took those three biscuits and threw them in the trash can. I've always tried to bring you a fresh word, fresh bread. But it's not enough for you to have the word. You've got to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And I can give you truth, but it's up to you to do something with the truth. You've got to have a home defense plan. In other words, you've got to be the one that says you're going to protect your family, protect your children. You've got to teach them what the scripture says. And then finally, you've got to be a part of the solution. The word part should be in that, be part of the solution. It's my duty, it's my responsibility to be a good citizen in our community. I don't want a theocratic nation, as I said. But as a Christian, it's my duty to be involved. This is not fundamentalistic. This is not radical. Jeremiah. God told him, I want you to confront Hananiah the prophet. Hananiah the prophet is telling the people everything's going to be okay. Everything's going to be okay. Jeremiah, he's a false prophet. I want you to confront him. Hananiah was setting the people up for failure because he, though he was a prophet, he wasn't leaning into the word. Hananiah was part of the problem that got him into Babylon. And so Jeremiah preached the word. Hananiah slapped him. Hananiah abused him. Because people who don't honor God will abuse you. People who don't honor God, they'll take advantage of you. So Jeremiah says the words that now you can find in Capitol buildings. Jeremiah says the words that you can find in state houses. Jeremiah says build houses, plant vineyards, and work for the good of the city. Build houses, plant vineyards, work for the good of the city. The best citizens, the best citizens of Downriver ought to be followers of Jesus Christ. Not pointing our fingers at our politicians, not pointing our fingers at the media, but finding a place in an altar here and a place in an altar at home and saying, God, I humble myself before you. It's not about me. It's about your glory. It's about your honor. I'm asking you because I won't preach this way on June the 30th. I want to honor those and I want to honor our nation. And I'm asking you to invite your friends and I'm going to just give a about a 25 minute message on Sunday morning on June the 30th that describes what Jeremiah was saying when he says build houses plant vineyards and work for the good of the city and we want to honor the policeman that can come that day the firemen that can come that day 
any of our elected officials that can be here that day, we want to honor them and say thank you for working for the good of our city. And after the service, I don't want you to confront them because they haven't fixed your road. I don't want you to confront them because somebody's been speeding through your neighborhood. I don't want you to confront them because they voted on something you didn't like. I want you to thank them for volunteering their time and serving. And I want you to let them know we're praying for them. And then if you want to write them a letter or go to the township meeting and talk to them about your road or about people speeding in the neighborhood, you should do that. But here at church, we want to honor them that day and thank them for what they do to serve our community. Can you say amen to that? Stand with me this morning. Hallelujah. rush out of here and, and forget this message or you can come and find a place in this altar this morning and you can join me because that's why I'm on the floor revival is going to begin in my house in your house and in this house but I promise you if you'll take just a few moments and come and kneel before the Lord and say God I want to humble myself before you. Search my heart. See if there be any wicked way in me. Lord, show me where I need to turn and be a passionate follower of Christ. Lord, show me where I've been tempted to compromise. Maybe even pray a prayer like this. Show me Show me, Lord, where I've not only hated the sin, but I've hated the sinner. That's a hard line for some Christians to walk. I don't know why. Jesus loved you when you were a sinner. Jesus took your sins to Calvary. Those nails, those thorns, that crucifixion, it was my sin and your sin. We can't hate the sinner. God loves lost people. The best thing I can do for any lost person, the best thing I can do for Miss Ocasio-Cortez is to pray for her and to be a passionate follower of Jesus. The best thing I can do for Bernie Sanders is to pray for him and be a passionate follower of Jesus. The best thing I can do for Mayor Pete is to pray for him and to be a passionate follower of Jesus. the best thing I can do for my family is to model this kind of humility and love that God calls for. So Lord, I ask you for those who can stay and take the time and kneel in your presence. Would you let a revival begin here and on May 19th, let it be said that God begin to 